The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Thanks for braving the weather and coming out on a chilly, wintry night here in Minnesota. Uh, it's good to be with you all. I am Shelley Graf, and I'm um, the associate director here at Common Ground, one of the teachers. I happen to be in this teacher training program through Insight Meditation Society, and one of my teachers is Joseph Goldstein. And at the beginning of the training, which was started three years ago, uh, Joseph said that team teaching was the smartest thing they ever did at IMS. And I really appreciated that and uh, tend to love team teaching also. Uh, because I learned so much about myself in the process of sharing the Dhamma with someone else. And so I'm really grateful that my friend and uh, Dhamma sibling and mentor, Patrice Kelsch, is willing to sit with me on the platform with you all tonight as witnesses to what might happen, which we don't know. Because <laughs> we've never done this before together like this in this format. So what we thought we would do is have a conversation with each other that you all get to listen in on. <laughs> and we've talked about what we might say, and we've prepared. I have a stack of notes here to prove it. And yet, I just leaned over to Patrice and said, so is there anything you don't want to talk about? She said, nope. And I said, anything goes? She said, anything goes. So we're going to take turns asking each other questions about practice, and hopefully you'll find something useful in what we have to share. Yeah. So I feel like I should let Patrice ask me a question, but I have something to say. Is that okay to say it? <laughs> um, we were Patrice and I were just talking before the program started, and I remembered a story of a a poem that I read, and it reminded just me of uh, what I do in my daily life is, besides working at Common Ground, I work as a social worker, and I mostly work with children and families, but more children than families. And often I will remember a student that I worked with like 10 or 15 years ago, and um, in those moments with children, there's just so much that's forgivable about their behavior, right? I mean, it's so easy for me, even in most the most difficult moments, and you've, if you've spent any time with children, you know this, to not like something that they're doing, but see them as just little beings who are trying to learn how to be happy, right? And so often um, I'll see kids or I'll see a grown people who remind me of children I worked with, and I'll go, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so, but like, wait, that was 15 years ago. This is like a 25-year-old person now or something like that. It's no longer the little person that I used to know. And there's something about the way I perceive or interact with that adult that's not quite as forgiving. Right? It doesn't quite um, allow for the messiness of our humanness um, as I did when you know they were little people. And so as little people, we were all little people, 
and growing up, we just do the best that we can, right? We're um, trying to figure things out, trying to learn, trying to know how to relate, given the models and the teachers we have in our lives, and we just navigate our little lives and all the while just trying to be happy. And then for me, and maybe for you too, is, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to come across these teachings, which give me a sort of frame or a way to be in my life that supports a deeper understanding, more peace, more freedom. These teachings that have helped me learn how to uh, make sense of my life, have a guide for my life. And they've been so powerful all along. And they continue to deepen in my lives and my life and uh, definitely feel like my practice is the most important thing because it shapes everything I do. It shapes all of my actions. It shapes my um, relationships. It shapes my relationship with myself and my heart. Helps me live in a way that I feel good about and um, have a lot less suffering because of. There's this um, short little sutta that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote about, um, in which case this uh, having a uh, dewa, like spiritual being in a in a slightly more um, beautiful realm than this human one, uh, is talking, and he he says, "Always anxious is the mind. The mind is always agitated." He's talking to the Buddha about problems present and future. Please tell me the release from fear. And this is kind of sums up our human predicament. Always anxious is the mind. The mind is always agitated about problems present and future. Please tell me the release from fear. So this is what the Buddhist teachings are all about. You know, it's recognizing that the difficulties, the problems in our life may seem like they're external. They may seem like they're about conditions or the way things are in the world or in our families or maybe because we don't have the right job or the right car or the right relationships or whatever. But when we really look, we see these, what actually our human predicament is what our mind constructs out of our lives, right? This inability to set down agitation, to set down fear, this constant needing to seek something, trying to get the juice from the future or resolve the past. And so when we start to practice, we start to dig into this practice, we start to really unpack how our suffering comes to be. And the Buddha's response is equally as simple. This whole teaching is eight lines long. The Buddha says, Not apart from awakening and austerity, not apart from sense restraint, not apart from relinquishing all, do I see any safety for living beings. So this is just what we're all doing as human beings before and while we're practicing, while we're children. We're all just little humans trying to be safe, trying to find some safety and happiness in the world. 
right? But it's only in the letting go that we actually find that peace. That's very simply put, but uh, kind of sums up the, for me, the real value in being a seeker and using, uh, finding the Buddhist teachings to really find a lasting kind of happiness, something that's more sustainable, more uh, long-lasting than what we might find in just this neurotic trying to be happy with this pleasant thing or that pleasant thing. So, Patrice, <laughs> what, where is your practice taking you these days? What are you finding inspiring or moving about practice? I see my practice and my life as so integrated that um, it's not just sort of my practice, my formal practice, but I see my practice is all of my daily life about trying to live with integrity um, and live with uh, compassion. And... um, I I was telling Shelley that this morning I heard someone on um, the radio who was kind of whining about being um, blonde and white, living in a rural area, misunderstood by a lot of people. I mean, you know, someone, and this is, I, um, I would have a tendency to be really snarky about that, um, and, um, you know, so, oh, you poor little white girl, you poor little white lady, um, but, you know, really, what I, as I was listening to that this morning, like, I just felt the defensiveness of that, you know, I mean, I, I just had this response of, that person's really fearful, that person is really defensive about who she is, and, what, how she perceives things are being taken care of, or she's seen or not seen. And I thought, I know how that feels. I know how that feels. And it just was a different response than I would have had um, years ago, where I just would have been extremely dismissive. Um, And so I really find that in my daily life, the way to stay balanced is really to look for, um, you know, where the, where the suffering is and both the suffering kind of externally, but also where I'm holding to a fixed view, where I'm hanging on to a view either about myself, about others, about relationships. And, uh, I, in, I believe it was like middle of, of December this past year, I'd been reading some of Pema Chodron's um, writings from her book, When Things Fall Apart. And she talked about making space for not knowing. And I decided that 
this is what I would do this year for 2002. I would really consciously make space for not knowing, not just, you know, notice the not knowing, but really be very, very intentional about making space for not knowing. And there are so many things that come up during the day. And I have this idea about how this is going to play out. And I just say to myself, and maybe not. No, I just don't know. I just don't know if it's going to play out that way. And some of it is, you know, pretty apocalyptic, like about the environment. And I can sort of start. And I say, I don't know. I mean, I know the way things are trending. And I don't know what human beings, when they wake up, are going to be able to do. How we're going to support each other and help each other get through what are going to be some really hard times. So it, it's kind of cultivating that um, that not knowing and really trying to have my antennae out for when I'm clinging to a view. You know, the Buddha didn't say that we shouldn't have opinions and and views. What the Buddha was really concerned about is the way we cling to them, that we identify with them. So you know, if we can notice that we have a view. Um, okay, that's, that's a viewpoint, and, and not to, to cling to them. So I think that that, um, the advice about, you know, in this, the sutta about, you know, not hanging on to things, it's really like, and there, there is a, a kind of freedom in that letting go and say, oh, okay, this is, this is a view. It might be right, might be very helpful, and it's a view, and just sort of making that that space has been um, been sort of where my my practice is, but I I do feel that I'm I'm much more drawn to really intentional compassion practices and to the metta practices and all of the the Brahma Viharas about um, appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, when something. Um, happy, joyful happens to of really taking joy in in the joy of, of another and then really trying to get through the day with equanimity. Um, so it's really that sort of Brahma Vihara practice I think that is at the core. Can I ask a follow up question? Please. That was juicy. <laughs> For the new people in the room, can you give a th- three-minute overview of what the Brahma Viharas are and maybe talk about, because I know you've been practicing these as one of your primary practices for years, and give one of your creative, a creative, give everybody an example of a creative way that you've practiced the Brahma Viharas. So the Brahma Viharas, um, it means sort of divine abodes. Um, and I think it was Gina Sharp, who's a wonderful teacher, who referred to them as our true home. But the Buddha taught that these are four states of mind, one of which is always accessible to us. And if we can sort of let ourselves rest in one of these four states, the mind is, um, is a pleasant place to be, really. Um, and the first is metta or loving kindness. And uh, loving kindness is 
at its core, relinquishing ill will. And relinquishing ill will is not um, not wanting justice for um, for our our society, for people in our society, but it is letting go of the desire for another person to suffer just for the sake of having them suffer, of wanting them to be be harmed. And that's very different than justice. It's that sort of resentment, revenge, uh, very, very different. And so um, metta at its, its core is not wanting someone to suffer for the sake of suffering. And that's actually really encouraging to me because I thought, you know, that's something that maybe I, I could do. I might not be able to love everyone, but I might get to the point where I could say, okay, and I don't want that person to suffer just for the sake of suffering. I would like that person to be brought to justice, but I don't want that person to suffer just for the sake of suffering. So it is, um, and it's a practice. It's, it's sort of the uh, foundation of all the others, and it's where the Brahma Viharas usually start. So it's, it's a practice of wishing well for ourselves and others, basic kind of non, non-harming. Compassion is, and interesting, the, um, all of these uh, states of mind have um, two, what are called enemies, the near enemy and the far enemy. So the far enemy is the opposite. So the opposite of um, loving kindness or friendliness would be hatred. Um, the near enemy is um, often referred to as uh, attachment, but I think in our language, thinking about it as codependency might be another useful way to understand the um, that sort of, of uh, near enemy, something that seems to be um, well-wishing for another, but it's kind of got a personal agenda in it. Um, The second quality is uh, compassion, and that is seeing the suffering of ourselves or of another and um, desiring for that suffering to be alleviated, so desiring to do something um, about it. And it's interesting when we are truly compassionate, the people who study these sorts of states say that we actually get a release of oxytocin and a little shot of dopamine. So we're both sort of get that, that connective, I mean, our brains get connected, affiliative, and then we get the little shot of dopamine, which is actually energizing. So we're kind of primed to act on it. So our brains, when they're compassionate, that's a great state to, um, to be in much better than anger for activists. Um, the third state is um, mudita, uh, or is called uh, appreciative joy, um, sympathetic joy. I've heard teachers talk about it as unselfish joy. It is recognizing the good fortune of another and um, wishing them well, enjoying their good fortune. Oh, so that the um, near enemy of, or the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. The near enemy is pity. So uh, 
and if you, you just reflect on that when when you're pity you you are distancing yourself from another when you are uh when you have pity it's that's the person who's suffering not me where it's in real compassion we have this just um great uh sense of the suffering of of another great receptivity to it and this desire to to alleviate it not se- separating self from from the other um in um, sympathetic joy, um, the far enemy is jealousy or envy. Um, the near enemy, sometimes people talk about it as exuberance of um, being kind of overly um, infatuated with, uh, with the good fortune of another, often hoping that you're going to benefit from it. But I also think that there's another near enemy, and to me it seems that there sometimes is a kind of condescension. Or, oh, that's so nice that, you know, your daughter got into um, Kenyan. My daughter got into Harvard, but I'm glad your daughter got into Kenyan. You know, that sort of thing where, where we congratulate someone and say, this is great for you, but having a sense of something better for oneself. So that, that's kind of the, um, the near enemy of sympathetic joy. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.